Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. In this series, we're bringing together leading thinkers to ask one of life's most important, substantial questions. What does it mean to live wisely and well? We'll get expert insight on neurobiology, mortality, loneliness, the meaning of an intellectual life, and more. In this episode, we'll talk with Alan Noble about the burden of living in the goodness of God. He'll discuss how the modern imperative to define yourself comes with a serious price. One of the things I want to remind people of is that actually you can. You, just by choosing to go through the basic motions of life, you are affirming to other people that this life is good. And just putting your feet on the ground and getting up despite the suffering you might be experiencing communicates to other people that this life is worth living even when you are suffering. And that's a powerful witness. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from April of this year. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website at ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. In an age of competitive and curated social media feeds, filters, and image management, it can be easy to assume that those around us are all very busy leading exciting, enviable, successful lives perhaps not entirely without difficulty or challenge, uh, but ones where challenge is channeled into growth, obstacles are stepping stones and setbacks are temporary. But the reality is that all of us will suffer in this life. And between the state of the world and the state of our own minds, many of us face not only the acute pain of loss, bereavement or injustice, but also carry burdens that are both huge and hidden crippling to the sufferer and confusing to those closest to them. In fact, the National Institute of Health found that just very recently, nearly 10% of Americans had experienced a major depressive episode just within the last year, and over 30% will experience clinical anxiety at some point during their life. Far more people will struggle to care for, love well, and live with those who are suffering. As our guest today has written, life is far more difficult than we let on. So what does it mean to affirm the goodness of God amidst the burden of suffering? How do we walk in faith when we dread getting out of bed? Our guest today has written compellingly of the ways in which doing the next right thing, even in the midst of despair or depression, is itself a witness to the goodness of God and of and a means of grace. And he explores the way in which our call to faithfulness is not a solo journey, but that it's by caring and being carried by others that the pilgrim can make it home. Our guest today, Alan Noble, is an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University. He's also the editor-in-chief of the online magazine, Christ in Pop Culture, and a writer whose works has appeared have appeared in The Atlantic, Vox, BuzzFeed, First Things, Christianity Today, and the Gospel Coalition, among many other publications. He's also a co-founder of the evangelical political organization Public Faith and a member of the Leadership Council of the Anne Campaign, as well as an author whose works include Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age, You Are Not Your Own, Belonging to God in an Inhuman World, and his latest work, which will be officially released within the next week, on Getting Out of Bed, The Burden and Gift of Living, which we've invited him here today to discuss. Alan, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. 
But we're really uh, looking forward to talking with you. I wanted to ask, as we start off, I wanted to ask you about the subtitle of your book, mm. The Burden and Gift of Living. And it kind of speaks to an idea that you have developed in some of your earlier works, which is, it seems like increasingly more of us describe our days as something we get through. And we just try to get to the end of them as if life itself has become a sort of burden. And it was an idea you explored in your last book. But in this book, you give indications that you yourself have struggled with that kind of dis-ease or burden. And you adopt a different approach to some of the questions you raised earlier. So as we start, I just wanted to ask what led you to write this particular book? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. So I have my own personal struggles, which I won't get into, but they certainly were in the back of my mind while I was while I was writing this. But I was also witnessing at the time I was editing, you were not your own, witnessing a lot of people struggling with mental health issues, whether it was my students or just people in the general population. It was right during COVID that I was editing, you are not your own, finishing up the the final edits. And I wrote a piece, I had I had written a piece, a, an essay that this book is based on called On Living that explored the question, why live? And it resonated with a lot of people. In fact, I had published it and for months later, I was still getting emails from people saying that it, it had helped them. And when you're writing a book and when you're editing a book, I should say, you're pretty sick of it. You, you are no longer convinced that it's any good. And so while I was editing one book, I was getting emails about an essay saying, this is the best thing you've ever written. This is really helpful. This is really helping me during this time of need. And so I said, maybe I should just write that book instead. And so, so I did. And as you say, it addresses some of the same questions that I've addressed in my previous books, but it doesn't ask any of the sociological questions or provide any sociological answers, really. I want to set those aside. And instead of exploring why we have a mental health crisis, which is a great question, and I've, and I've touched on it in previous books, I wanted to just consider... Well, given the fact that we do have a mental health crisis, how do you get out of bed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one of the points that you make kind of over and over in the book is just the, the pervasiveness of invisible suffering. Mm -hmm. I think at one point you say, get to know a person really well, and you will almost without fail get to know a person who routinely struggles to get out of work in the morning. And, and so I may kind of dip my toe into the sociological aspects that you just yeah. mentioned, but you know, one of the things it seems like is is happening is at the very time when some of the you know visible, concrete, very understandable forms of suffering are in some ways being alleviated. You know, mm -hmm. as one example, you know, 150 years ago, it was very common for parents to have one or more of their children die. You know, whether right. you know as babies from illness, whatever it is, you know, it still of course happens, but you know, happily, mercifully, it's it's less common yeah. you know, for that to occur. At the same time, the amount of both reported as well as sort of evidenced depression and anxiety seems to be going through the roof. You know, I, I saw a study recently saying that, you know, among teenagers between essentially 2015 and 2021, there's been an 150% increase in depression Gosh. for teens. And, and so why is 
why does suffering seem to be so much more pervasive now than perhaps it seemed a hundred or so years ago? That's a great question. So I'm going to give the answer that I give in my second book, You Are Not Your Own. I, I think that we live in a time where the basic assumption about what it means to be human is that we are our own and belong to ourselves. And the problem with that is that it's a burden that none of us can really bear. It overwhelms us. It, it's too much. We end up having to create an identity, a purpose, values, meaning, and a sense of belonging all on our own shoulders. And we have to carry this. And I think young people feel this acutely, particularly because of social media. We live in a very, in a highly competitive society. So if you believe that you have to create an interesting and exciting and enviable existence and you go online, you're going to discover that there are more interesting, more beautiful, more exciting people all over the place. Mm -hmm. And you really don't have a chance. You really can't compete. So while it's true that we've been freed from some of the real material sufferings that previous generations faced, that has freed us up to have other more internal suffering. And that's what I think we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. You know, part of the way that we often try to deal with that kind of internal suffering that you have mentioned is through what you've called technique. You know, mm -hmm. you do a certain thing and you use a rational method to kind of get a certain outcome. And in many ways, you know, that makes sense. You know, we will probably be doing better if we eat healthy food and get enough sleep and occasionally work out and see our friends than, you know, if we don't. Right. Also mention that there's not only limits to what technique can do, but in many ways, but placing hope and technique can actually exacerbate suffering. How so? Yeah. So, so technique, as you point out, is, is defined by one of my favorite thinkers, Jacques Ellul. I, I judge thinkers by their names and his name sounds great. Jacques Ellul. And cool. <laughs> it does sound pretty cool. And so um, he says technique is the, uh, is rational methods for maximizing efficiency. So anytime we do this, and as you mentioned, things like exercise programs or dieting or sleeping a certain number of hours or taking walks and getting a certain amount of sunlight so that we can maximize our productivity, all these are, are, are examples of, of techniques. And technique is not in and of itself problematic, but what, what a society governed by technique can do is it can train us to think that whatever problems we are experiencing can be solved if we just find the right method. It, it's, it's the right self-help book, the right life guru or life coach or YouTube guru or whatever it might be. But there's, there's some answer to the question. You just have to find it. But that's not how the real world works. And so what can happen to you is you feel like if I have a problem, it's my fault because I didn't find the right program or I didn't do the diet properly or I didn't take the right supplements or whatever it might be. And so there's this turn inward, this blame inwardly when you experience results of really the fall, just living in a fallen world and living in a world there, where there is corruption and decay and sorrow and, and mourning. So technique is 
not in and of itself wrong. It's, you know, it's, as you say, it's good to exercise. But when we put our hope in technique, which society asks us to do, we're inevitably going to be let down. And then we turn that letdown into self-accusations. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that kind of struck me in reading your book is how we are so naturally attuned to tuning inwards. And you make essentially a sustained case for returning outwards, you know, yeah. bring out both vertically and, and horizontally. And one of the things that struck me is while our suffering often seems, you know, isolating, even at the mid, you know, the, the bottom of our isolation, what we choose to do, whether or not we want it to actually does have a communal impact. And you wrote about, I think you said, we almost never take the witness of our actions seriously enough. My every decision communicates to people around me something about the nature of God, the goodness of his creation and his laws. Mm. I wanted to ask you about that and that, you know, going back to sociology for a second, you know, we do know that when people make choices, you know, when they choose self-harm, there actually is a a contagion effect that- People around them are, are more likely to do the same thing. It has, you know, whether it's almost a, a permission slip or, or simply a modeling, uh, that there is kind of that impact. Uh, and would love to hear you kind of talk a little bit about what it means to bear witness to the goodness of God when one is in the midst of being burdened by struggles that perhaps others don't see or understand. Yeah, and this is one of the criticisms or of the book or one of the challenges of the book, you know, in the subtitle, it does say the burden and the gift of living. And there is a burden to life. You are your brother's keeper. You didn't ask to be, I didn't ask to be, but people watch me. People watch me, people in my family, my friends, my students, my colleagues, strangers on the street, people around me are watching me all the time. And they're watching to see how I respond to this world. I didn't sign up for this, but there it is. And someone could read the book and say, well, Alan, you're putting an additional burden on people who already feel tremendously burdened. You're guilting them into thinking about other people when they can barely you know, get out of bed, or maybe they can't get out of bed. And my response to that would be, I'd have several responses, but one of the responses that I'd focus on now is that actually... Although it is a burden, it is a challenge to think about how your actions affect others, it's also something that is exciting. When you are in a period of great depression, for example, one of the first things to go is a sense of purpose. You feel like your life is meaningless, that you don't offer anything, that you can't contribute anything. One of the things I want to remind people of is that actually you can. You Just by choosing to go through the basic motions of life, you are affirming to other people that this life is good. And just putting your feet on the ground and getting up despite the suffering you might be experiencing communicates to other people that this life is worth living even when you are suffering. And that's a powerful witness. There are children, there are adults, there are family members, friends watching you, looking to see how you are going to respond to suffering. And when you respond affirming life, that gives them hope. And so one of the things I remind people in the book is that you might doubt 
your own life's purpose and meaning. But very often, even in those moments, you can see the meaningfulness of other people's lives. So if you recognize that your daughter's life is meaningful, that your spouse's life is meaningful, that your friend's life is meaningful, help affirm the meaning of their life by affirming the meaning of your life, by getting out of bed and going through and doing the next thing that you need to do. Mm-hmm. You know, as you're talking about this, I, I can't help but think about the fact that, um, you know, loneliness is itself a form of suffering. Mm-hmm. And it almost always attends and exacerbates, you know, any other form of suffering yeah. we face. And of course, reported loneliness is significantly on the rise, um, and perhaps especially among young people. And I can see someone thinking, you know, in regards to kind of what you just said, well, part of the problem is they don't feel connected to others yeah. to begin with. They don't feel like other people are watching or care or, you know, that they're somehow connected. What do you say to the those who feel very much like they are suffering alone and they're suffering mm-hmm. to that loneliness? Yeah. So first of all, I, I would say I I understand. I recently had essentially all of my close friends move away for various reasons. And that's a tremendously difficult thing to go through because even when you can communicate with someone through text or the phone, there's, there's something about being embodied with somebody else uh, and bearing each other's burdens that way that is irreplaceable. And so it's hard. I recently wrote a, an article for the Gospel Coalition about this. I do think that the contemporary world makes it very difficult for us to have friends. And as I've entered middle age, I've realized that I have to be just intention, just as intentional as I was when I was younger about finding a spouse. I have to be that intentional about finding and keeping friends because the hectic nature, the competitive nature of the modern world just militates against close friendships. We're just taught to move as much as we want, wherever we want, whenever we want for jobs and these sorts of things. And, and that makes it, you know, it's just not conducive to deep friendships. But I was recently talking with Kurt Thompson, who's written the book, The Soul of Shame. And he pointed out to me that that when I asked him a similar question, and I think he gave a great answer because he said, you know, when Jesus went around calling disciples, some of them said no, and he kept asking. And that's what we have to do with friendship. Friendship is hard in the modern world. People are afraid to be vulnerable because to be vulnerable is to potentially lose your competitive edge. And so what we have to do is be like Jesus, going from person to person, seeking out people who seem to be the kinds of people who could be friends and and intentionally ask them, will you be in a deep friendship, you know, with me? And that's it's going to be awkward and uncomfortable for some of us like me who are introverts. But but if we're not intentional, we are going to be alone. What you've sort of just prescribed makes me sort of think about the fact that I'm sort of struck throughout your book how you consistently advocate not analysis or you know reasoning with oneself. It's almost always concrete, practical, modest action. Yeah. And it seems like over and over, you simply say, just do the next right thing. Mm. And, you know, 
a lot of us are, you know, in our head a lot and, yeah. and really kind of conceive of much of our, our spiritual life too, as being, you know, sort of in our, in our heads. So we'd love to hear you talk about why you advocate action, even simple, modest action over analysis or even reflection or contemplation. Yeah. I mean, those sorts of things have their place, reflection and contemplation. But if you find yourself in a, in a period of deep depression or anxiety, then staying in your head more is often not what you need to do. There can be depression can and anxiety can pull you inward to yourself and to your fears and to your sadness. And what we need, one of the things that we need is an opening up and a moving toward others in action. And, you know, part of that moving toward, by the way, you know, I'll just say, because it's a reminder that many of us need, can be a moving toward professional help especially if you're if you're feeling acute and sustained suffering mental suffering i strongly encourage psychology psychiatry seeing a good therapist that can be one of the next right things that we do uh, but there's but we need to move we need to move and uh during those periods one of the things that can happen is that it it feels like any any kind of big project is impossible and overwhelming. It, you know, planning meals for the week sounds impossible. Finishing a project at work feels impossible. Caring for you know other people in some meaningful you know sustained way can might 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 feel impossible. And so when you find yourself in that position, it it seems to me that just Focusing on doing the next thing is what we need to do. So maybe you can't plan meals for the week, but you can ask yourself, what what do I what can I eat for breakfast? I'm going to do that. And 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 maybe you know, imagining helping a friend move or helping a friend with some big life crisis seems overwhelming, but picking up the phone and calling them might seem like a concrete step that you can do that is manageable. And so I think breaking things down to minute, simple, basic steps, I'm going to walk the dog, I'm going to feed the kids or walk the kids and feed the dog or whatever, whatever it might be, but just concrete, simple things. That's what I'm going to do makes life manageable in those periods when life feels unsustainable. So I think that's it's advice I often give my students who are overwhelmed with big life choices. Who should I marry? What kind of career should I get into? What kind of major should I have? You know, how do I interact with my parents? You know, who should my friends be? All these sort of big life questions. What should, how do I understand my faith? And very often that can lead them to just freeze up. And so one way to break out of that, that frozen state is by just chipping away little by little. And wanted to ask you how your approach is different from the Stoics. What it, What is explicitly Christian about the one step in front of the other? Yeah. And how does that distinguish itself from a kind of an up by your bootstraps Stoical approach? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So it, it, yeah, it can sound very Stoic, just this do the next right thing. But for the Stoics, it's just do the next right thing for the sake of doing the next right thing. There's no metaphysical or ontological, you know, basis for doing these sorts of things. And what I want to say is that we do the next right thing for the glory of God. 
And that gives us hope. And so, for example, you know, if you tell someone it's really important to get sunlight, get exercise, eat meals, and be with other people so that your mental health is better. That's true. All of those things are true. But that's fundamentally taking good things and turning them into techniques. And what I want to say is, well, we do those things because they're glorifying to God. And they are going to have those effects. They are going to help you mentally. But we do them because it's honoring to God to eat good food that glorifies him, to walk in the sun that he created and sustains and preserves, to be with other people that he's made in his image. And so the major distinction that I would make is that we're doing these things to the glory of God rather than for their own sake or for the benefit that they bring us. You know, in addition to the people, the many people who are suffering from either depression or anxiety, there's also their loved ones yeah. um, who, who just may, may not understand why, why is it so hard? Why does this person that I adore and feel like they have so much to live for, you know, why are they staying in bed? What, what do you say to the loved ones and friends of those suffering who, you know, especially when the, the cause of their despair may seem hard to understand. Yeah. That's one of the, one of the most difficult things. Like when you can see someone's, somebody's broken a leg, for example, right? You could see the broken leg, the, you know, the bone is protruding or something not to get too graphic, but you, you know, you could say like, okay, there it is, right? There's a thing, and it's clear that this person is suffering, and I can I can understand. I I don't know their pain intimately because I you know I am not currently experiencing that. Even if I've broken a leg in the past, I'm not currently experiencing it. So there's a disconnect. However, I can totally see why you would be suffering in this way. That makes complete sense. But with mental suffering, you can't. You don't have really any access to it you can the sufferer can describe it or they can try to describe it but it's not the same as being there and experiencing it yourself it's not even close to it and so and when they communicate it sometimes it feels just self-evident that they're wrong i'm sorry you shouldn't be that depressed your life is actually beautiful you've got a wonderful family or friends or a great career or it doesn't no you're wrong you're just wrong so why are you suffering in addition, you know, when I I had, I tell this story in the book, but I had herniated discs in my neck. And when that happened, I had a three-year-old and a newborn and I had to wear a neck brace for three months. And the doctor said, okay, Alan, you can't lift more than 10 pounds. And my son was, a, he was a big kid so when he was born. So, so both of my kids, I couldn't pick up for three months. And on the one hand, that was really difficult for my spouse. My wife was, you know, was was frustrated by that, but she knew that for our family to function well, I had to get well. And for our family to function well, I had to not take care of my kids in a certain kind of way. I couldn't pick them up. And there was a, a weight limit and there was something reassuring about that for both of us. But with mental illness, uh, very often you don't know how much agency you have. You don't know where your your where your depression or anxiety 
ends and your agency begins, or even if there is such such lines. And that can make it difficult, I think, for a spouse to 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 sympathize because they know that it's possible that you could try harder, that you could do more to get healthy or to act in healthy ways. And that creates a, a, a real stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wanted to ask you the question that you pose repeatedly in your book as this being the central question of the book, which is why get out of bed? I mean, ultimately it's the question, why live? And I'm sure there are people watching who have struggled with depression and have wrestled with that question themselves. And so I guess turnabout is fair play. I want to ask the question that you, <laughs> that you pose, which is why get out of bed? Yeah, I think one of the main answers that I give in the book is that we bear witness. We didn't ask for this, but it's true that when we choose to bear our sufferings and carry on to get out of bed, to make breakfast, to take care of these basic things and go through life, we communicate to other people that this life is beautiful, that it's good, that even though we suffer, it is still fundamentally good. That is going to give other people hope when they are in periods of great suffering and they ask that same question. They're going to be able to look at you and look back on your experience and think, okay, it's possible and good for me to endure this suffering and carry on, even though it hurts, even though it's hard, even though I'm depressed or anxious or whatever it might be. And so I think one of the reasons that we do that is that by persevering, we declare the goodness of life to other people, and that encourages them to continue to persevere and recognize the goodness of the life that God has given them. That's the fundamental truth. God has given them, and that's a beautiful thing. Thanks, Alan. It's been great to talk with you. As promised, the last word is yours. At one point or another, you are going to need an answer to life's fundamental question, which is why get out of bed or put more bluntly, why live? The best answer there can be is that you were created and are sustained moment by moment by a God who knows you perfectly and perfectly loves you. And each time you choose to rise out of bed, you are proclaiming with your life and at the risk of great suffering that God's act of creation really was good. Now, there may come times when you are required by your suffering to radically depend upon others to carry you out of bed. My advice is to embrace those moments, knowing that you will carry your neighbor in return when the time comes. Thank you. Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on living wisely and well. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.